This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Did you know that Nick Nolte almost played Superman before director Richard Donner brought in Christopher Reeve? Or that 20th Century Fox told exhibitors that if they wanted the hotly anticipated film The Other Side of Midnight, they would have to show the far less anticipated movie Star Wars? How about that Paramount, feeling the script was vulgar, agreed to distribute Psycho only if Alfred Hitchcock financed it personally? These bits of movie trivia and countless more I learned from reading George Lucas's Blockbusting, the new book from George Lucas Books, edited by noted entertainment journalist Alex Ben Block and Lucy Authory Wilson, the director of publishing for Lucasfilm. Thank you for downloading Books and Nachos. I'm Arnie, co-host of the movie review podcast Now Playing, which you can find at nowplayingpodcast.com, and also co-host of Star Wars Action News, which you can find at swactionnews.com. And today, we're going to be talking about George Lucas's blockbusting, and also I'll be interviewing Alex Ben Block later in the show. I first became aware of George Lucas's blockbusting last year, and an acquaintance of mine was one of the writers on the project. But it wasn't until George Lucas himself promoted the book on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart that I got a complete understanding of what the book contained, and my interest was piqued. With a title like George Lucas's blockbusting, you might expect this to be yet another look at George Lucas and his influence on movies, with focus on the Star Wars saga. However, this book is not about George Lucas's movies, but rather what Lucas and the editors deemed the 300 most influential and popular movies made in the history of film, from the innovation of cinema at the beginning of the 20th century through 2005. This book is divided into sections based on decade and begins with a brief description of the American cultural landscape during that decade, be it World War I, the Depression, World War II, and so on, and then also discusses the landscape of American cinema during that time, including the trends and technologies that greatly influenced that decade of filmmaking. Next, the book gives us information on a number of films from that decade put in chronological order by their release date, giving us the vital statistics of the movie, such as its year of release, stars, running time, and major awards received, as well as a page of prose regarding the film. The prose is broken into three sections, plot, production, and distribution, encapsulating the highlights of the creation and reception of these films. I was given an opportunity to interview one of this book's editors, Alex Ben Block, and we talked about what makes a movie a blockbuster and what determined how a film made the cut to be one of the 300 mentioned in George Lucas's blockbusting. We're here with Alex Ben Block, editor of George Lucas's Blockbusting. Hello, sir. Hello. Now, I want to start by talking about you a little bit and your history with uh, entertainment journalism. You have a long history of reporting for Hollywood. You were editor of The Hollywood Reporter and Hollywood Today. And you've also had some non-entertainment work. You've worked for Forbes. Why is entertainment journalism something that you've gravitated towards? Well, I've actually done a lot of different things. I've been a city editor. I've been a sports editor. I've uh, been a business editor. But I found entertainment to be the most fascinating area and the most fun to cover. And I really came into entertainment in the 1980s when it was really changing and the whole business of entertainment was becoming more important and more visible. It was when uh, blockbuster movies really first became part of the popular culture 
in a weekly way when the grosses were announced and so forth. And it followed uh, a number of scandals in Hollywood where there was a lot of talk about how business was done. So I'd been a movie critic. I'd been a business writer for Forbes. I decided to take the two and put them together and cover the business of entertainment. And it's been a fascinating life. And it seems to me when you're dealing with entertainment journalism, there's the there's like three areas, two of which you covered. There's the strict business, which is the income and the cost of movies. There's the behind-the-scenes journalism, interviewing the actors, writers, and directors about specific projects and the creative process. Then there's this more sensationalistic, like you said, the scandal-driven personal life journalism that's really risen to prominence over the past 10 years. What is your preference when it comes to these different types of entertainment journalism? Well, I uh, work for a trade newspaper. We're a business-to-business publication, and we write about the business of entertainment. That's my primary area. In a secondary sense, I've become fascinated with how movies are made and why they're made, and I have a lot of friends in show business, and I'm very interested in the whole process behind the making of movies and television shows. The third type, the uh, sort of tabloid celebrity journalism, I don't do. It doesn't interest me, and in fact, uh, it's kind of an embarrassment to my profession as far as I'm concerned. And while uh, we all read some of it, I think uh, the world has gotten way too snarky and way too cynical and uh, way too much information has come out about these people. So uh, I'm really involved in the business of entertainment and in the business of how movies get made and delivered on a global basis. And that history makes you a perfect fit for this book, Blockbusting. Can you tell us about the genesis of the idea for Blockbusting? Yes, and actually, uh, I'm, I'm co-editor of this book, and I'm lead editor with Lucy Autry Wilson, who's a longtime employee of Lucasfilm and ran Lucasfilm Books. And uh, she contacted me about four years ago and said that they were embarked on a project and they'd already actually hired some writers and weren't happy with what had been done. And they wanted to know if I would get involved. And the idea was to take a look at blockbuster movies in a much more serious way. Of course, there have been many books about uh, artistic movies, many critics' books about what they think are the critical favorites. But we didn't feel that there was really a book that looked at uh, the biggest movies and paid attention to them in an important way. And, of course, George Lucas uh, has produced many of these films, or at least some of them, the Star Wars pictures, and been involved with Raiders of the Lost Ark and his friends with Francis Ford Coppola and many other filmmakers. And so he had a great interest in this, and this really started with George Lucas uh, and his idea that there should be a book that really puts in historical perspective these pictures and looks at them not just in a frivolous way or what some critics said, but how did they get made? Why did they get made? Who made them? How many feet of film were shot? What was the budget? What did they gross? How does that gross compare to today's dollars on an inflation-adjusted basis? And uh, so it started a fascinating process, and eventually... Uh, I put together a grid of all the uh, major award winners from BAFTA Awards to Academy Awards to Golden Globe Awards to SAG Awards and other Guild Awards as well as the blockbuster movies, and we created this grid, and then we uh, came up with a list of movies, and then uh, Lucy Autry Wilson and I each had our input, as did some other people Lucy brought in, and ultimately George Lucas made the final selection of the 300 movies that would be included in a very in-depth way, and then I also wrote the sections for the most part, uh, and some people wrote some of the others. But I wrote most of the uh, chapters uh, looking at each decade from the 1890s on and discussing trends in movie exhibition, distribution, production, technology, and so forth. So uh, it was a a very large project, and uh, Lucy Autry Wilson oversaw it. She was involved. uh, I helped pick, but she really hired uh, almost two dozen people who did research, who did interviews, who went to archives. 
who looked at old material, who talked to people, and then she also reached out to many filmmakers and uh, members of the Hollywood community and got their input. And uh, so all together, uh, we believe that we came up with something that's really a unique resource for filmmakers, for film students, and for fans of film and aficionados of movies who want to know how their favorite movie got to the screen and who did it and what it cost and how it performed. You talked about this grid of movies and George Lucas made the final selection of the 300. And I know with any collaborative process like this, everything gets whittled down. Was there any movie that you had on your list that didn't make the final cut that you kind of wish had either for personal reasons that you like it or because of its impact? Well, there were some movies, you know, we had to make some difficult decisions here. If you look at our list, it's really a domestic American English language movie list. So Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I think was an amazing movie, didn't make our list. It's something that I might have put on if we were going more broadly. But uh, you have to make decisions in a case like this, and uh, some of them are hard decisions. So uh, certainly there were some movies that were favorites of mine, and we only picked two, three, four movies from each year over 100 years. And if you look at the number of great movies that come out in some of these years, clearly you could have had a much longer list. You could have had a dozen movies just from a single year. So there was actually quite a few films that uh, you know potentially could have been on here, but I think the ones that were chosen are representative of uh, not only the biggest, but among blockbusters, you know, there's the good ones and there's the not-so-good ones. And I think for the most part, these are the ones that are both artistically interesting, creatively interesting, and have served to uh, prove that over time that they really are worthwhile movies. And not all of these were a blockbuster on the day of release. You know, a picture like It's a Wonderful Life, which is on our list, in its initial release wasn't considered a big box office hit. Even Wizard of Oz wasn't that big hit. They were discovered later when television came along. So these are pictures that stood the test of time. And uh, I think that was a good good choice. And although it left off some films because there's just thousands and thousands of movies, you can't do them all, I think this is a very interesting list. I agree with you, and I definitely have some questions here about uh, the specific movies that didn't didn't make the cut. I did notice that you know above the title it says George Lucas's blockbusting, and all six Star Wars films plus American Graffiti were included in the list. Given that Lucas was one of the driving forces behind the book, was this just a given, or was there a thought of maybe not including them lest it be seen as immodest? Well, I think they deserve to be included. Uh, all of those films were blockbusters in their time. American Graffiti was certainly a landmark film. You notice Howard the Duck is not on the list. So it's not like every single Lucas film or everything he ever touched is on the list. But uh, clearly, you know, this is his project. He financed the whole development of it over a period of uh, really about five years because there was like two years of work done before I even got involved. So this is his baby, and uh, Lucy Autry Wilson was the one who was doing it. She was in touch with him and every single week discussing what was going on and uh, giving him notes, showing him stuff as we wrote it, as we edited it, as the list was developed. And so uh, he, uh, at the end, approved putting his name on it because he really likes this book and likes what we accomplished. But, uh, uh, you know, clearly uh, this is not about uh, art films, uh, obscure movies, or movies you're going to see in a, in a specialty theater. And his movies deserve to be on the list. And the fact that he did the list and includes it probably was a given, but I have no problem with that. And when you get into the meat of this book, I found that it was far more than just information about the movies. It's a cultural chronology of the American movie business and the cultural landscape and the technological innovations. Was there one aspect of this book, the history or the movie stories, that interested you or excited you most? 
Well, uh, the older stuff was really new to me. A lot of what I did, I did all the 1930s films for the most part myself, and I learned a great deal. Uh, you know, film like She'd Done Him Wrong, I always thought was kind of a silly little Mae West picture, but I actually went back to the archives and I found the budgets and uh, the notes and the memos that were sent about it. I looked at the uh, letters that were sent back and forth between the, the would-be censors and the studio. I saw the cultural impact that this movie had, how in its time it was such a shocking film, and how it really was the uh, match that lit the fuse that led to a whole era of censorship that began after that, that lasted all the way into the 1960s. So for each of these films, going back and finding them, or seeing you know what really happened with the birth of the nation, and how there was controversy about the treatment of African Americans even when it came out, and how they used that controversy as a marketing tool, or, uh, you know, any of the films on this list, were, there was a lot of fascinating stuff to me, but I guess what interested me most, and the thing that I consider the turning point in the history of blockbusters, was really in the 1970s, when you had uh, uh, several films, uh, among them notably Jaws and Star Wars, which came out, and until that time, the idea of a wide-release movie opening a lot of theaters was actually a bad thing. When a studio wanted to dump a movie because they didn't think it was very good, they used to release it wide because they wanted to milk it for as much money as they could before the public figured out what a turkey it was. But then uh, with the advent of television advertising, it was so expensive, they realized they had to have a new kind of distribution. And so the wide release became a way to amortize the cost of those TV ads and to do national releases. And uh, that's why only after that, uh, I was at the L.A. Herald Examiner uh, in about the early 80s. And I was one of the first to work with the AP to come up with a list of the week's top movies, the top grocers. Until that time, the studios wouldn't even release that information. The closest we had to it at the time, there was a man, a wonderful old, older man named Art Murphy, who's now passed away. And for years at Variety, uh, the trade publication, he had what he called rentals, which is the amount of money that would be returned to the studio from each movie, which he kind of guesstimated from sources, because the studios wouldn't tell you anything. And so uh, once they started doing these wide releases, they realized that announcing how much money it made, how many tickets it sold, the gross figure, was a way to promote the movie. And that if people heard, oh, it made X millions of dollars, they'd say, well, I better go see it because it made so much money. And it opened this whole new era. And really, the blockbuster of the modern times, the wide-release movies, the movies that now play sometimes all over the world on opening day, uh, really all began in the 70s and went from there. And to me, that was a turning point and one of my favorite parts of writing about this book. And I want to talk to you about blockbuster movies, and it seems to me the term blockbuster is usually based upon a film's financial success, like you said, how many millions of dollars the movie made. But in mm -hmm. this book, you explain that that's expanded for this book to include a film's cultural impact, and as you said earlier, the longevity and the awards. Why is that an important expansion? Well, I think uh, we felt that the, if a film stands the test of time, which we measured in different ways, awards, how much airplay it gets, whether it's still remembered or not, whether it's still in circulation in the home video market, uh, you know, looking back at its cultural impact. I think uh, all of those tests were important factors. And uh, the gross alone, while it's very important, didn't seem to be a good enough measure. You can say, we'll, we'll just do movies that were big uh, commercial successes in their time, uh, because that didn't really explain everything. And sometimes... Uh, you know, there's a, a movie that comes out and it makes a ton of money in its time, but it's not really that great a movie and it doesn't stand the test of time and we kind of forget it after a while. But uh, what we were interested in was the movies that were uh, important in their times for the most part, 
but more importantly, uh, stood the test of time and that people look back on it and say, yeah, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, that really changed things when it came out back in, uh, you know, in 1977. And uh, it was the first science fiction movie that made me think about science fiction in a different way. Or uh, Snow White when it came out, uh, you know, uh, in 1937 uh, was the first uh, color animated movie, the first full-length animated movie from the Walt Disney Company at a time. People didn't think anybody would watch full-length animated movies. So, uh, you know, these are cultural landmarks. They did change our world, and they did send a cultural signal. And culture is a very important thing. You know, uh, history is not just the facts of what happens or incidents. It's also what people think, how their fashions and morals and ideas are changed. And often it's by these cultural impacts. Uh, you know, we see Saturday Night Fever, which was critically lambasted when it first came out, even though it was a commercial success. And then many of the critics went back afterwards and said, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it was really better. But in its day, it, uh, it changed fashions. It uh, changed the language. It started a trend in terms of uh, disco dancing at the time. So uh, these films are very powerful cultural vehicles. They're not just a commercial thing that comes out and comes and goes, but uh, they really can have an impact on our world. And that was interesting to us. And that's something that we look for. And I think uh, that's the kind of movies we really wanted to talk about. And in that line, I've seen a lot of debate about what's more important in a film, either it's deemed artistic merit or it's box office success. And I think that's something exemplified right now by how the Academy Awards has expanded their feature film category to include 10 films in the hopes of including some of the more widely seen films because their best pictures usually weren't the most popular pictures as far as box office. What is your opinion in art versus commerce for film? Well, you know, I think the greatest films are both. The original Star Wars to me was both. Avatar, I think, is both. You know, it's uh, art is important in anything you do. It has to be artistically done, but to do just art, so it's kind of bores a large part of the population, uh, the film is going to be widely seen anyway. And to do just the commercial aspect, to just make it uh, violence or some special effects that are, you know, sort of like a, a firecracker going off in front of your eyes, they have a momentary impact. Uh, that, to me, is not that interesting. But when you can combine art and the commercial, and a lot of these movies do that, not all of them, but a lot of them do that, uh, that, to me, is very exciting. And that's what this book was really about. It was about saying there have been a million books written about what's artistic, and there have been books written about what's commercial. But uh, let's talk about the movies that are both artistic and commercial. And I think that's kind of what we tried to do here. I also noticed that in your list of movies, if a movie was included, a lot of times I'd see sequels that may not be considered as well-received were also included. For example, I'd agree Meet the Parents was very widely loved. I was a little surprised to see Meet the Fockers. And, you know, the second Indiana Jones film or Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Batman Returns. But yet, of course, no Jaws 2, 3, or 4, or Porky's 2, or whatever. But were there cases where sequels were kind of grandfathered in due to the impact of their predecessors? Well, you know, this is something that uh, actually I was very involved in discussing as we formulated this book. And that was, uh, you know, at one point I felt, well, let's not do Raiders alone. Let's do all of the Raiders films as a single entry. 
and we went back and forth on it. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the final decision was that each of these films had its own unique reason for being. And if these films came out and they were commercially successful, if they also were artistically interesting, and if there was a sort of complicated story about making them, then why not talk about all of them and talk about each one individually? They, they didn't all play in the theaters the same day. You didn't buy one ticket and get to see three of them. Uh, so we decided that uh, each of them had an integrity. And, uh, and look, uh, Porky's 1 was a landmark. Porky's 2 wasn't. So, you know, Porky's 1 deserved to be on the list. Porky's 2 didn't. And so you, you have to make choices as you go along. And uh, we were limited to about 300 films. Uh, so, uh, you know, our choice was to include the sequels as well as the original film where we thought the sequel was, in its way, uh, important at the box office, important artistically. Uh, and all of them aren't great art. I don't want to go overboard and saying, you know, they are. But uh, each of the pictures that we included, we felt, was important enough in its time and has is, and is lasted and uh, is timeless enough that it does deserve to be included. But it was a difficult decision, and it wasn't a gimme. It was something we really talked about, and, uh, and we finally decided this was the way to go. You mentioned specifically the Raiders movies in that book, or the Indiana Jones films, I guess. And the book stops in 2005. If you were to go further, would you include Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Uh, yeah, we probably would, and I certainly would include Avatar, and I'm still hoping that this book is successful enough that we'll get a chance to go back and do a revised edition in the future and update it with even more movies uh, going forward. Uh, it's going to depend on kind of how the book is received and how, how things happen. But, uh, you know, it was very hard to cut it off, and uh, I think there's even a final chapter where I did write a section between 2005 and 2009, the kind of catch-up section that uh, kind of covered a bunch of things that we otherwise couldn't do and, and we couldn't add a lot of films. But uh, I'd love to have the opportunity in the future to add more movies. While this book spans all genres of film throughout the history of American cinema, one of my favorite genres is horror, and it seems a little underrepresented. I'd say there are some seminal films like the original Halloween or even Silence of the Lambs that might deserve to be in. I did see Blair Witch and Exorcist, but there are some seminal pictures like Rosemary's Baby. What do you feel is the impact of horror film on cinema, and why were so few horror films included? Well, uh, I can't say it was a conscious decision. I think it was kind of looking at the movies uh, that we thought were the ones that were both, had the, you know, again, stood the test of time. The horror genre, uh, for better or worse, has been a dumping ground for a lot of movies over the years. Uh, even when I first got involved back in the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, if you had a dead weekend and there was no big movies, suddenly there would be three or four independent horror films that would pop up that were not particularly great movies, but there was an audience for them. They were what was called exploitation movies. So uh, a few movies rise above the genre, or you have a phenomenon like the Blair Witch Project, where there's really a lot to talk about, about not only did it uh, come out of nowhere, cost very little and make a lot of money, but the way it was marketed was very interesting. You know, the way they you know, purposely lied to the public about the, what the movie was about and whether it was real or not. Uh, you know, It really was something that the whole culture talked about for a while. It was a landmark. And so when you have so many movies to look at and you're asking, well, should I include this horror film or should I include, uh, you know, Animal House? Uh, you know, eventually you have to make some choices and uh, clearly the genre films of horror are well enough represented here, I think, that you can get a taste of them. And there are whole books dedicated just to horror films. And clearly for people who want that, you know, that's available. But uh, uh, I think your perception is probably right that this list is light on horror films, but I, purpose I personally don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Now, 
I'm a child of the 80s, and back then, I kind of remember that it seemed each year had one event movie that, like you say, it made so many millions of dollars that everybody saw it, including people who may not have been fans of specific genres. And I'd say in 80, it was Empire Strikes Back, 81, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 82, definitely E.T., 84 had Ghostbusters and so on. But it seems that starting around the 90s, it became that instead of a movie of the year, in the summer and now around the holidays, you get a movie event every week and that the movies have shorter lifespans. Would you agree with that characterization? And what do you think that impact is when you say you're looking at the longevity of these films and if they're still relevant today? Does the rapid fire secession of event movies lessen their impact? Well, uh, again, the great films stand the test of time and, and tend to find an audience over time in multiple formats. I think you're absolutely correct, because what you're really pointing out is a very important trend in the history of movies, and that is when blockbuster movies first came out, they had a longer shelf life. Jaws or uh, Star Wars uh, or some of the early 80s films that you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, would be around for weeks and weeks sometimes. But uh, what did happen is that uh, by opening in more and more theaters, and uh, a wide release in the 70s might have been 1,000 theaters, today a wide release might be in 4,000 theaters and on 8,000 screens, because if there's multiple screens in each theater. And so you have television advertising, you, you drive this huge audience in to see them all on opening weekend, and then that's it. A lot of them drop 40, 50, 60, 70% in their second weekend, and by the third or fourth weekend, the audience has pretty much been satisfied. They've seen what they want to see, and there's something else to move on to. And so uh, that's both the good news and the bad news. It, both, it had a tremendous impact on exhibition, the people who own the movie theaters, and it had a tremendous impact on the studios, the people who distribute and make the movies, uh, because they spend so much money on these movies, and you had to get all your money back very quickly. Uh, they used to have a term that they would use called front-loaded, that uh, most of the money would come in in the very initial part of the run, and so they began to plan for that. That was kind of part of what was understood to be happening. And so uh, as there were more so-called blockbusters, as each of the studios began to see that every year they had to have a certain number of what they called tentpole pictures, these big, expensive movies, often with stars or high concepts or uh, based on a famous uh, book or a, uh, a famous toy or something else, that had a uh, marketable brand that came with it. Uh, the more they made of these, and every studio had to make them, and they say at present there's about six major studios, and there used to be maybe nine. So you would have every summer, uh, each of them would have one or two, so you might have 15 or 20. And each Christmas, everybody would have at least one, and so you'd have uh, at least maybe 10. And that's a lot of movies all competing, and not all succeeded. Clearly, a lot of them came and went, and they were huge uh, amounts of money that went like, down a hole. But, uh, you know, what we tried to do here was judge which ones still were most worthwhile, which ones stood the test of time, even if they had a relatively short life in in the theater. I mean, uh, E.T. in its day played a long time. Avatar right now is playing a long time. But there's tons of movies in between that had one or two big weekends and they're gone. But they were still pretty good movies. So we tried to sort all that out. And I noticed in the book that I was surprised that it's very balanced between older and newer films because of the more, you know, top heavy release of blockbusters in recent times. Was that a difficult balance to maintain? Well, this was always 
seen as a project that had to do with the first century of movies as we know them. So we wanted to cover the entire hundred years. We didn't want it just to be a, a, a book about modern movies or just a book about older movies. So we uh, purposely went back and identified, like I said, between one and four movies typically from each year, and in some cases even before there were those movies around. I mean, uh, to me, the original blockbuster movie was 10 minutes long. It was called The Great Train Robbery. It came out in 1903. And this was a movie that had a great impact. It was one of the first narrative films that showed the power of movies to get people emotional and excited in the theater. And that movie had a shelf life of like 10 years. They used to use it to open Nickelodeons, what they called the early theaters. Uh, every time they opened one to make sure they get an audience, they would show the great train robbery and people would come and see it. Uh, and then, you know, the first full-length blockbuster to me was probably Birth of a Nation, which came about 1915. And so uh, we began from that period on looking at every single year to say, okay, what movies uh, were blockbusters? What stood the test of time? And we purposely balanced the list. We wanted those early films because for modern audiences, a lot of them don't remember these movies or don't really understand or remember the history. They don't know how they got made. It seems like, uh, you know, just a bunch of old junk to them. But there was a lot of great artists working in those days, and they deserve to be remembered as well. And we wanted to remember how much money they made and how they made it. A lot of what this book is about is how the business changed over the years. When movies were first sold, they used to sell them by the pound. Then they sold them by the foot. And then finally, they realized, well, we have to sell based on the content. And that didn't come to the late teens or 20s when they really began selling movies because it had a certain star in it or it had a great story or it had a, a compelling plot. Uh, and then as time went on, you had the studio system that ran from essentially the late 20s all the way into the 50s. And then that broke up uh, for various reasons that are discussed in the book. And then you had the era of the independent producer. And then uh, you had the studios, as we know them, going into a turbulent period through the 60s and being reborn in the 70s. And then the era of the wide release and the blockbuster and the entrance of these big corporations, first as individuals, and then most of the studios are now divisions of much larger global companies that are often in many other businesses. And so movies were affected by who owned the studios, who distributed the movies. And so our story wasn't just to tell about the movies, but to put in context the vast changes in the way movies were made and financed and distributed both in America and around the world. And that was a big story to tell, and I hope that we've uh, managed to at least illuminate some of that story. And then, as you mentioned, you have an epilogue at the end, and it talks about 3D movies, and you mention Avatar in there, which, of course, wasn't released at the time of writing, and you mentioned it a couple of times here. If blockbusting was being written today, do you think Avatar's contribution to the history of cinema can yet be measured? And if so, what is it? Well, it, it, I've actually written a lot about Avatar. I work for The Hollywood Reporter as a contributing editor currently, and I wrote an almost 3,000-word piece on the making of Avatar. And I actually talked to people in New Zealand and in Los Angeles and elsewhere who were involved with every aspect of this movie. I interviewed Jim Cameron and the producer John Landau. And I really believe that this is a landmark film, uh, certainly in a technological sense. I think the use of 3D is the most mature use yet, and it opens a new era. I think the whole use of CGI and the uh, realism of the way they, he used a, a new technology to capture uh, the facial movements, the eyes, the, the nuance of how people move with every muscle, the way they mix the CGI with animation and other tools, 
really is opening the door to a whole new way to make movies. And he's so far ahead. I'm not even sure people can copy him right now. It's going to take a while for people to catch up and figure out how to use this. And I've heard the same carping. I'm sure you have about the story. Oh, you know, I've heard this story before. It's too much like this movie or that movie. Or, you know, I jokingly call it Dances with Wolves in Outer Space. But uh, <laughs> what's important to me was that they took uh, one of, uh, I always say, somebody once told me years ago, there's only 32 original stories in the Bible, and they're all recycled over and over again. And I don't know if that's the exact number or not, but there's a certain plots that we see over and over again. And it's not a question of, has this been told before? Because they've all been told before. It's a question of, how's it been updated? How's it been used? Is it a story that's compelling? Can you, uh, does it make you want to watch that movie? When you go there, does it take you to a place you've never been before? You know, when I love a movie and I sit in the theater, and this is really why I'm in the entertainment uh, journalism business, is for these moments when I forget I'm in the theater. I forget it's a movie. And sometimes when the movie ends, I, I'm startled. And I wake up and I realize where I am and what, I, what I'm doing because I've been in that place. They've taken me to that world. I've been so involved with those characters. And, uh, and that's a very exciting thing as opposed to what I used to do as a critic. I had what I called the ceiling tile system, where if I didn't like a movie, my eyes would drift upward and I'd start to count ceiling tiles. And the more I counted, the worse the movie was. So I like those zero ceiling tile movies. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what we tried to write about in this book. I couldn't agree more. I don't have the ceiling tile thing, but I've always judged by how often I look at my watch. If I never look at my watch during a movie, then I'd know it was really good. Right. That's what it should do. You should get so caught up that there's nothing else you'd rather be doing at that moment. And you talk about 3D being important. Obviously, you talk about Avatar, and you also mentioned My Bloody Valentine 3D, which I found, you know, night and day different in use of 3D there. But you talk about how it's important because they need to get people back in the theaters. And then very recently, it's been announced they have the 3D televisions coming out, and it's going to bring this 3D experience into the home. Do you feel that that's going to undercut the benefit to theaters in 3D, or do you think that it's going to just be supplemental? You know, I don't know. I think it may undercut it. Uh, I've been amazed how rapidly 3D television has developed. Uh, within a few months, we're going to see a number of really big manufacturers bringing out lines of very high-quality 3D-capable TVs, far beyond anything that we have now. I've seen the Panasonic 105-inch TV in 3D, and it's startlingly good. And there's new kinds of glasses that are uh, not disposable, but all kind of permanent glasses that have built-in shutters and other things that are coming that are going to enhance the experience even more. And so I think that we will be watching 3D movies, maybe not everybody. Uh, you know, not everybody has a home theater. Not everybody's going to spend the money to do it. But clearly it's going to be there. But on the other hand, I don't think there's any teenager or uh, a lot of adults I know who want to stay in the house all the time. And they want to go out, and movies are a great place to go. And also, when you have a thing like even Avatar, let alone a great comedy, uh, seeing it in an auditorium with a bunch of other people is part of the experience. If you see a comedy alone, it's sometimes not very funny. But when you see it with a room full of people who are all nowhere to laugh in the right place, it can be a thunderously good experience. And it kind of captures you and makes you part of it. And, and you hear them laughing and you're laughing and you, you all get into it together. And it's a communal experience. You can't get anywhere except in a movie theater and except with a crowd of people. Uh, it's not quite the same having you and a couple of your kids or your friends sitting around the TV. It's never going to be the same. So is it going to eat into the theaters? It could. And there is a danger because theaters are very expensive to build and maintain. And you only have to take away a marginal amount of their business and it could really be devastating to them. So I don't know what the impact is going to be. But uh, I do know that uh, we live in a multi-platform world, and we're going to have a lot of choices in the future about how we see things, where we see them, 
But I uh, have my fingers crossed that the modern movie theater with the stadium seating, with the 3D capability, with the really great digital projection, with a candy counter that actually has some choices beyond the usual stuff, is something that'll be so enticing that we will want to still go to it, because I think it's a great experience, and I'd hate to see it go away. All right. Well, Alex, thank you very much for taking the time. I agree with you that the experience of seeing a film in the cinema is unparalleled. I do hope, like you say, that there's a chance of future editions of this book with updates including Avatar and such. But I have a final question. Is there any chance of a George Lucas Underwhelmers featuring the best disasters in history? You mentioned Howard the Duck, maybe Bonfire of the Vanities. Well, uh, I'm sure that uh, there have been, you know, the Golden Turkey Awards and other books that have attempted to do that. Uh, I can't speak for George Lucas. He certainly is capable of speaking for himself. But my educated guess would be he's not going to be doing that book anytime soon, and certainly not in my lifetime. So we're proud of what we've done, and we're, we think it's a great list of movies, and uh, we hope it starts a lot of conversations, and that it tells people about the origin of these movies that maybe they never knew about and, and what they really cost and all the facts that are kind of interesting interesting in the making, and then it'll uh, whet their appetite to see even more great movies in the future. All right. Well, again, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Alex for that enjoyable conversation. Now for my review on George Lucas's blockbusting. I've read a number of books on movies and movie making. As a screenwriting and film student in college, I read many for classes I took and even more for my own edification. I've read books that cover films by genre, by decade, and books devoted to specific movies, of which two of my favorite are The Making of Star Wars by Jonathan Rinsler and The Devil's Candy by Julie Salomon. Books about movies are plentiful enough that they get their own section at Barnes & Noble, and when I heard George Lucas Books was publishing one, I was honestly skeptical what this could add to the already crowded marketplace. But the idea of a book specifically devoted to popular movies, instead of acclaimed films, appealed to me. In my reading, I've seen an enormous amount of ink spilled on films such as Schindler's List, Casablanca, and of course Citizen Kane. But I can't recall any book that discussed the impact of movies like Armageddon, Top Gun, Porky's, and Beverly Hills Cop. In short, I hadn't seen a book about movies that I would go and see opening weekend, the types of movies we normally review on our Movie Review Sister podcast now playing. So I quickly went to Amazon to get the book. The first thing that I realized was that while this book is touted as being about 300 films, this book is truly an encapsulation of the history of American cinema. Before even getting to the first of the movies featured in the book, the authors and editors spend a few pages discussing the creation of the motion picture and the original way films were released and viewed. In these early pages, which span the time from the start of the 20th century up till 1913, they do discuss some movies, such as The Great Train Robbery, in detail, but the majority of this portion of the book is focused on the technology of movies as well as their distribution and production, themes that will be continued throughout the book. Given that blockbusting is focused on feature films, which is defined by the Screen Actors Guild as having a running time of 80 minutes or more, these early films didn't count as one of the chosen 300 films, but their place in history is represented. And in these early pages, the book strikes its tone. The book is not only dedicated to the plots and performances of these movies, but also to their creation. As the book started with tales of early movie cameras and projectors such as the kinetoscope and the vitoscope, I was reminded of my grandfather talking about his first television or early telephone switchboards, which is to say the topic is novel, but not all that interesting to me. However, this is the beginning of Blockbusting's trace of movie technologies, and this includes the descriptions of the technology used to bring sound to movies, then color, and through time all the way up to the latest in CGI and 3D effects. But yet the book is equally about the people who made the movies. Instead of a technical description of the kinetoscope, we're told about the people who made it and the forces that surrounded its creation. 
And finally, we discussed the movies made with some of these technologies. These early films mentioned are milestone movies, which represented leaps forward in technical or narrative filmmaking, such as the first ever animated film, whose name I'm bound to butcher, Phantasmagerie. But very quickly, by page 38, we have our first featured film, The Sea Wolf, released in 1913. From 1913 on, each film is ordered by its release date, and at the turn of each decade, there's a cultural overview discussing America at that time, such as our involvement in World War I or World War II, describing the social and political climate that surrounded and in many cases made films a success. This leads me to the first realization I had reading this book. While this book is called Blockbusting, the movies featured are from the entire history of cinema. As I mentioned in my interview with Alex, given that today's films are some of the top grossing in history, I expected this book to really focus mostly on films from 1970 to today. I looked at the statistics on BoxOfficeMojo.com, and as of February 2010, of the top 100 domestic grossing films not adjusted for inflation, 69 were released in or after the year 2000, and only one, Gone with the Wind, was released before 1970. If you adjust for inflation, as this book does on all of its box office numbers, the playing field is slightly more level. But still, of the top 100 domestic grossing films, more than two-thirds were released in 1970 or later. So to see the book George Lucas's blockbusting have as many films featured from 1925 as it does from 1999 was a bit of a shock. There aren't very many films featured from the 1910s or 1920s. There's only one film per year from 1913 to 1920, and 1925 is the first year with more than three films, whereas the later years all have four or five per year. But beyond that, the book is very evenly distributed. Now to some, this history of cinema viewpoint would be a necessity. After all, I think it's a written prerequisite somewhere that a book about influential films must include The Jazz Singer, Birth of a Nation, Gone with the Wind, and, of course, Citizen Kane. But this book also includes such remembered favorites as 1925's The Lost World, Disney's Pinocchio, or Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. To readers whose film tastes run more modern and are more interested in the production notes on Men in Black or Three Men and a Baby, these early entries may have little interest. And personally, I'll admit that my interest in a film's creation and reception was directly proportional to if I'd seen the film and how much I liked it. Having been a film student, I was exposed to many of these older films that I would not otherwise have seen, such as The Maltese Falcon, Citizen Kane, Birth of a Nation, The Jazz Singer, Casablanca, Rebel Without a Cause, and so on. And while I enjoyed many of those movies, they're not the films that represent my generation or that my generation would line up to see. However, if you skip over the movies you're not as interested in, you won't lose any of the impact of this book. The book doesn't appear to be intended to be read cover to cover. Information about films, directors, and actors is often repeated in the book to appear in every relevant spot. For example, in the write-up of the classic 1931 Universal monster movie Frankenstein, the book mentions that there was a 1910 short film adapted from Mary Shelley's book, but that was also covered previously in the book. So if the reader skipped the section about the 1910 Frankenstein, it's recapped with the 1931 version. Therefore, the readers are able to focus their reading on films they enjoyed and lose little of the book's impact. As the book goes into more modern times, we of course have the staples of Clockwork Orange and The Godfather, but also The Towering Inferno, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, and even Armageddon. It's the rare book that talks about Ghostbusters in great detail, and on the next page discusses Amadeus in just as much detail. As I mentioned earlier, for each of the 300 featured films, the book has the vital statistics page on the left, and in an attempt to present a level playing field, each movie's cost and revenue are given first in amounts adjusted for inflation, so how much it would have cost in $2,005, and then in parentheses, the actual numbers from the time are given. We're also given information on the days of principal photography, running time, and release date. 
Next to the business side is a box called Standing the Test of Time, which lists a film's Oscar nominations and wins. Other major awards, such as Golden Globes, its position on the AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, its place in the top 300 domestic box office adjusted for inflation chart, and if the film had been selected by the National Film Preservation Board, is also listed. And by using all these barometers, they have taken a well-rounded approach to determining if the movie stands the test of time for filmgoers as a whole. Then on the right page, we have three blocks of pros. The first block is labeled plot, and it spans no more than a few sentences, and it's only slightly more detailed a summary than you'd find by pushing the info button on your TiVo. Though sometimes the movie's endings are revealed, such as, spoiler alert, at the end of Independence Day, the aliens are defeated and the world is saved. The next block is production, and is usually by and far the largest and most interesting of the three blocks. It's an encapsulated making of for the movie, and it may describe the casting process, the writing process, technical challenges, or other tidbits of information regarding the film's creation, such as a new camera technique pioneered in the film from handheld cameras in the early films up through the latest digital techniques. It's in the production section that the greatest bits of movie trivia are found. For example, I didn't know the classic Bogart film The Maltese Falcon was already made into a movie ten years before. However, the production notes do grow slightly repetitive as repeating themes about scheduling difficulties, fight with studios over story points and budget, and various casting changes come up in movie after movie. Yes, it's interesting that Burt Ward was originally cast as Benjamin Braddock in The Graduate, but when his role as Robin for the 60s Batman TV series conflicted, he was replaced by the now classic Dustin Hoffman. But by the time I get to the fact that Meg Ryan and Molly Ringwald both turned down Pretty Woman before the then-unproven Julia Roberts was allowed to star, a pattern is set in. The final block is distribution, which discusses any problems the studio had releasing the picture, its critical and popular reception, and the film's legacy. Other than the repetition of theme in the production section, my only complaint about these movie encapsulations is how high-level they are. Entire books have been devoted about the making of many of these movies. I know off the top of my head, making of books for Star Wars, Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, Citizen Kane, Superman, and there will be one released this year on The Empire Strikes Back. All that will go for several hundred pages about the making of each of these seminal films. And as the films included here are often franchise films and major successes, there are doubtless dozens more books about the makings of these movies. But by boiling the entire movie down to a bite-sized, single-page, short-attention-span summary, you end up with little more detail than you could get by going to imdb.com and reading a movie's trivia, business, and awards links. But if you just pick and choose your movies and read the notes as if this book were a print version of IMDb, you're going to lose what makes this book special, and that's the contextualization of movies in the history of cinema. Alone, the 600 pages devoted to the 300 movies aren't groundbreaking, but the text at the beginning of the book and the beginning of each new decade, as well as the graphs and charts that show the progression of films over time, really create a new angle for this book. While most books I've read either lionize films as pure art or reduce cinema to pure business, Blockbusting is the first book I read that tries to strike a balance that's somewhat closer to reality, that art is appreciated and respected, but money makes the decisions. But much like the movie Breakdown, it's impossible to cover over a hundred years of cinema in a single volume, and the result is also very high level. For any hardcore film enthusiast, historian, or student, there's going to be little new here. But that's not this book's intended audience, I believe. I think this book is intended for the much more generalized audience. For the average moviegoer who might be attracted to this book due to Lucas's name on the cover, there are lots of gems of wisdom here that can enable someone to think about film in a different way and perhaps to understand why to some of us an Oscar betting pool is a more important bet than the Preakness. 
And for the armchair mogul who awaits every Sunday afternoon for box office mojo to update with the weekend numbers, this book has less new to offer. Those people are already familiar with all the different ways box office numbers can be skewed, such as, adjusted for inflation, this movie is the third biggest domestic opening on a snowy weekend in February. But there's still tidbits of information here about movies that may not be known. And for all types of audiences, especially those of us in Generation X or Y, who may be a bit more opposed to movies made in black and white and before we were born, I can't deny that adding all 300 of these movies to your Netflix queue would provide a series of movies that would not only entertain, but provide a wonderful look at the evolution of cinema and really are some of the best movies ever made past and present. That having been said, it's perhaps the rare movie viewer who would approach The Blair Witch Project, Schindler's List, Singing in the Rain, and Star Wars The Phantom Menace with equal excitement. It's a given that some of these movies will appeal more to each reader than others, but there will certainly be a large number of movies that would appeal to any taste. I do have my minor gripes with the book, as I mentioned, and I'm still not sure why Mrs. Doubtfire is seen as having more influence and impact than Wes Craven's Scream, but I think this book is a must-have for every fan of good movies. It's a reference book, a history book, and an exciting to-do list. It really is rare to see a book discussing Batman Returns on one page, and the next is about Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, or, as mentioned, Mrs. Doubtfire is followed up by Schindler's List, or even Mary Poppins and Dr. Strangelove paired together. But George Lucas's blockbusting does so and makes each film equally interesting, both individually and in their place in history. I highly recommend George Lucas's blockbusting. You can get this book at Amazon.com, and if you support Books and Nachos by using the link from our homepage at BooksandNachos.com, we'd greatly appreciate it. So that's it for George Lucas's blockbusting. We'll be back soon with a review of another book, and in the meantime, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Now Playing, the movie review podcast at NowPlayingPodcast.com, which is currently doing a retrospective of Martin Scorsese films, and will soon be ramping up for the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street with a full Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective series. You can also listen to our Star Wars podcast, Star Wars Action News, a Star Wars collecting podcast you can find at SWActionNews.com, and Republic Forces Radio Network, a podcast devoted to the Star Wars Clone Wars cartoon series. You can find that at RepublicForces.com. You can also find our earlier book reviews at our homepage, BooksAndNachos.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2009 Venganza Media Incorporated.